Welcome to another American Bankruptcy Institute podcast. I'm Kara Bruce, the ABI's resident scholar for the fall of 2013 and an associate professor at the University of Toledo College of Law. This September, the Diocese of Gallup, New Mexico, and the Diocese of Stockton, California, each announced plans to file for bankruptcy protection. These will be the ninth and 10th dioceses, respectively, to seek bankruptcy as a means to resolve the substantial liability for alleged clergy sexual abuse. These cases bring up very complicated and largely unsettled issues at the intersection of religious liberty and bankruptcy law and require courts to balance the harm between the victims of alleged sexual abuse and the members of the churches where the abuse allegedly occurred. At the ABI, we have covered diocesan bankruptcies in a number of programs. Today, this podcast gives us a chance to look back at nearly 10 years of diocese bankruptcy law as we prepare for the cases ahead. Here to walk us through this topic is Susan Boswell. Susan is a partner at Quarles and Brady in Tucson, Arizona. She represented the second Catholic diocese in the nation to file for bankruptcy protection and the first to emerge from bankruptcy. That's the Diocese of Tucson. Susan has also represented uh, the dioceses of San Diego, California and Fairbanks, Alaska, and will represent Gallup, New Mexico in its upcoming Chapter 11 case. In addition to an active bankruptcy practice, Ms. Boswell is a frequent writer and speaker on topics of bankruptcy. She has recently been named Best Lawyers Lawyer of the Year in Bankruptcy and Creditor Debtors' Rights, as well as Bankruptcy Litigation. Susan, thank you for your time. It's wonderful to have you here to walk us through these issues. Uh, thank you so much, Kara, and I'm delighted to be here and uh, happy to uh, talk to you about uh, both very interesting and uh, certainly complex uh, issues. So Stockton, California and Gallup, New Mexico have both recently stated that they're planning uh, to file for bankruptcy relief. And as far as I'm aware, Susan, this is the first mention of any diocese bankruptcy filing since the Archdiocese of Milwaukee filed in early 2011. So can you explain to us what goes into the decision to seek this extraordinary relief and why we may be seeing these bankruptcies filed now? Sure. Uh, there can be a number of reasons unique to a particular diocese, but generally what, what happens is that a diocese is faced with mounting claims, either those that have been filed or uh, as so that they are in active litigation in court, or mounting claims that are being made that may not have yet been filed, but that the diocese is just not financially capable of settling on terms that are acceptable to the claimants. And, uh, and uh, in many cases, because of the, uh, the various state statute limitations, these cases may be arising in periods where a diocese may be totally uninsured in the 40s and 50s. Um, the idea of liability insurance, in some respects property insurance, or the type of insurance that might cover these claims simply wasn't high on, on religious organizations' radar, particularly when you're talking about emerging dioceses or younger dioceses or, frankly, poor dioceses like uh, the Diocese of Fairbanks or, in this case, the Diocese of Gallup. And what a diocese will look at is that either trial is imminent or it's clear that there is no settlement that will result. And as we, I think, know from the few cases that have gone to trial, the likelihood of a very large judgment against a diocese is, quite frankly, in many respects, almost a foregone conclusion. Given the limited nature of the assets of a diocese, and, and at least in my experience, the true desire of the bishop and other religious people involved in the, the matter to equitably compensate uh, victims of clergy abuse, that they see this as really the only way to deal with a number of claims, because if the first person 
to get to trial gets a large judgment, then they will be the first to gain whatever unencumbered assets there are in the diocese. And really the, the issues that we'll talk about later that are certainly a deterrent uh, for a religious organization to quickly go into a Chapter 11 uh, are issues that if there's an un unsatisfied judgment, they're going to face anyway. But in those that case, in, the, in a state court, and then only with the ability to resolve with one claimant as opposed to being able to resolve all of these claims, including future claims at one time. So can you give us a sense of the financial heft of the claims against some of the debtors you've represented? Sure. Um, in, in every case that I have dealt with, there has not been a judgment on any sex abuse claims that has been entered prior to the filing. So you don't have a court that has determined or a jury that has determined what a particular claim is worth. But what you do see is the number of claims. And even after you file, I'll give you some examples. In Tucson, there were 11 or 12 claims that were in active litigation. And then as a result of the bar date, I think that the claims that ultimately were filed were less than 50. In Fairbank, there were approximately 100 claims that were in active litigation. And by the time the bar date had run, there were over 300 claims that had been filed. Um, in San Diego, which did not go completely through and did not have a bar date because we ultimately settled, similarly, there were more than 100 claims that had been filed as a result of then California opening the one-year window on statute of limitations. So it really can range. Uh, and in the other cases that I've followed, again, it, it's a wide range of claims. But the monetary significance of even one claim can be enough to put uh, even a substantial diocese in uh, real financial distress. And what are the typical assets that a diocese might have to satisfy all of these different claims? Sure. Uh, you know, I think people have a view of a diocese as, as in, in all cases, having a large number of assets, both real property and, and money, and that just simply is not true. A diocese, uh, if it is a, in a larger metropolitan area and one that is uh, generally quite, quite substantial, certainly can have large donations that have come in and over the years may have built up uh, cash reserves or investments or like assets as well as strictly diocesan real property, and I, I say strictly diocesan real property because I will make a distinction between property that is owned, real property that's owned by a diocese and that's, that is owned by the parishes. So you really do have the range of assets uh, that a diocese may own, but a diocese is very much dependent both on, on contributions from parishioners and others. And they also, in most dioceses, collect a tax from the parishes that covers their costs. It's supposed to cover their costs of administration. And they do provide education to uh, the parishes. They do provide uh, some type of administrative oversight or benefit. In some dioceses, they administer the insurance. So it really is kind of a management, to put it in, in, in truly secular terms, it's really a, kind of a management consulting company, if you will. I, I realize that certainly it is much more than that but uh, on, on a religious basis, but that in terms of what they actually do, that, as I say, in secular terms, uh, what one might think of. 
Yeah, it seems like a good analogy from the business side. Uh, well, as you alluded to, one of the major issues uh, in to arise in these types of cases is the extent to which the property that we might normally attribute to parishes will qualify as property of the, the bankruptcy estate and, and be reachable by creditors of, of the diocese. Uh, so can you walk us through the, the organizational issues underlying that question, some of the legal issues underlying that question as well? I'll be happy to. The the organizational structure of the of a diocese can can vary. Uh, it can be uh, a an organizational structure where you have a diocese, which is a separate nonprofit corporation, and then each parish, either by state statute or because that they have organized that way, that each parish is separately incorporated and. And in most situations where a parish is separately incorporated under civil law, then it will be the record owner of its property, and the diocese will be the record owner of its property. That may not always be the case, and I'll talk about that um, in, in just a moment. On the other hand, in the diocesan bankruptcies that I have handled, uh, Chapter 11, the dioceses were organized as corporation sole, and that is a corporate structure that is allowed under most states and generally used by religious organizations, but not necessarily limited to religious organizations, where the corporation sole has perpetual uh, existence and if a new bishop is named or a new church head is named, who generally is the sole member of the corporation's soul, then that, that change does not affect the perpetual uh, organization of the corporation's soul, and it does not require to have a board of directors or an operating agreement as such as you would expect for nonprofit corporations and or uh, or as they call them money corporations under the bankruptcy code there are other types of structures but those are generally uh, the the organizational structures in states where the diocese is a corporation sole the parishes uh, in many instances are not separately incorporated and what you will find is that all of the real property is titled in the name of the diocese because a parish, although considered a separate entity and a, and a, a separate juridic person is what it's called under canon law, uh, may have different civil law uh, permutations depending on state law. For example, it can be an, an unincorporated association, but state law may not allow an unincorporated association or recognize that it can legally hold title to real property under civil law. So those are the various types of organizational structures that you might see. And certainly in the case of a corporation's sole structure, where parishes are not separately incorporated and all the property is titled in the name of the diocese, the claim is that all of the real property, you look no further than record title, and if record title is titled in the name of the diocese, then it owns that property free of any other restrictions and therefore is property of the estate. The other area or type of property may be uh, pooled investment funds. It, it is not unusual for uh, the parishes to pool their money for investment purposes because they can get a better return, uh, particularly if you have parishes that are in um, smaller areas or that they happen to be less uh, well-off, if you will, uh, than other parishes. It also allows for loans to be made among parishes to assist in building uh, uh, additions or improvements or things like that. In the past, those have uh, 
before the property issues came to the forefront, it was very typical that the diocese administered those pooled investment funds, and there weren't formal trust relationships or formal trust agreements that were in place. Given what has happened and some of the decisions that have come out from the bankruptcy courts, because we have no real appellate decision on these issues, it would be, I think, atypical now to find those parish deposit and loan funds to be administered by a diocese without some formal written document that clearly delineates the trust. So that gives you at least some examples of kind of the organizational structure, the overlay, and at least opens the door for some of the the uh, property issues that come to the forefront when you have a Chapter 11. Yeah, absolutely. And I've got a, a couple of questions I'd like to, to follow up on the, that general uh, outline. Uh, so one, back to this concept of especially the corporation's sole um, and and dealing with property of the estate when when the ownership appears on paper to be uh, in the diocese hands, uh, with the benefit of almost ten years of case law here to draw on, are is the question of how to draw the line between diocese property and parish property uh, in in those types of cases any clearer than than say when you started in this uh, field with uh, your representation of Tucson? Um, actually, not surprisingly so, and or perhaps in some respects not surprisingly so. There are several bankruptcy court decisions uh, range, ranging from decisions on real property uh, to uh, trust to trust funds or uh, trust. Uh, and I should clarify when I say trust. Uh, those related to personal property or or investments, uh, but the only appellate decisions that you have on these issues are the uh, actually Wilmington. I believe that went up to the district court and the bankruptcy court was affirmed. In Spokane, the decision went to the district court and the re- bankruptcy court was reversed. Uh, and then you have uh, the current pending case, the Archdiocese of Milwaukee, that went up to the district court, and that on a trust uh, investment trust uh, question, a cemetery trust, and that was reversed by the district court, and it's now before the Seventh Circuit. So we may be getting some uh, a decision out of a circuit court soon, but what generally ends up happening in these cases, Tara, just because of both the risks and, quite frankly, the administrative expenses and um, the, the scope of the property, of the value of the property involved, is they generally get settled uh, after the bankruptcy, a bankruptcy court decision. And so you really don't have any definitive appellate decision. And my guess is even if the Seventh Circuit rules on the merits we still won't have, certainly, in other circuits, we won't have definitive decisions. And uh, my guess is that uh, it will remain an unsettled area of the law for quite some time. And in light of that, um, how unsettled the law is uh, largely across, uh, across jurisdictions, have you seen that some dioceses are trying to adjust their organizational structures, set up ex- express trusts, or do other things to protect parish property before we enter uh, the the bankruptcy zone? Yes. Uh, I alluded to one of them, and and one of them was this parish deposit and loan fund, Mm -hmm. as I indicated, that typically uh, had been uh, not only administered by the diocese, but held by the the diocese and... uh, um, in some, you know, in some cases, not clearly identified as trust funds, and I think most dioceses now, if they continue to act as an administrator or a trustee, there is a written trust agreement uh, that governs the trust and that 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 complies with trust law, so that whoever the trustee is is really a trustee, and it's clear who the beneficiaries of the trust are. Um, in Tucson, uh, as part of the plan, the 
diocese uh, incorporated uh, and had the parishes separately incorporate with a as nonprofit corporations with a board that is does include the bishop and I believe one other diocesan uh, diocesan officer, but that is not the majority of the board, and there are provisions that uh, make it clear that this is uh, this is not a diocesan entity. Similarly, I think other dioceses that are corporation sole have uh, looked at or have incorporated their parishes or have actually developed real property trusts where the real property is put in of the parish is put into trusts and again a clearly written trust instrument so that the uncertainty or the arguments that that are are generally used in these cases on the diocese side uh, are are resolved and so you are definitely seeing that that people have paid attention i cannot tell you that it's universal <laughs> because it's not uh and i think um you know we'll continue to see this evolve probably over the next 10 or 20 years well, when we think about this idea of, of imposing greater uh, numbers of trusts over parish property, uh, you know, that, that necessarily brings to mind the result in the Wilmington case. Uh, you know, that was a resulting trust found, but uh, of course what happened there was that the money that represented trust funds was, was commingled with operating funds. And although this resulting trust was found, uh, the parishioners were not able to see the benefit of that because they could not trace uh, the funds. So when we have these new organizational, for lack of a better word, changes, uh, to what extent are, are they vulnerable to misuse by, by the people who, who run churches? Well, and, and you, that's an excellent, uh, excellent question because the just as with any business, uh, and we've certainly all seen it with commercial clients that we represent, uh, the uh, diocesan organizations, it's one thing to set it up. It's another thing to really observe the provisions of the trust and, and as you use the example in, in Wilmington, to make sure that uh, the provisions of the trust are not only complied with, but that you do, if necessary, segregate the funds or make sure that you can certainly trace the funds, even if they are in some type of pooled investment account. Because under, I'm certainly no CPA, but it is my understanding that under GAAP, for uh, applicable to nonprofit organizations, pooled investment funds are recognized and they are not that uncommon, but the, the key is uh, to segregate those uh, in some way, even if it's accounting and being able to trace them from general operating funds and certainly being able to show that the restrictions in the, in the trust as well as applicable state law have been complied with. And, you know, I mean, realistically, Dioceses are religious organizations. Parishes are religious organizations. They are not, they do, while they conduct a business, so to speak, their, they, their mission, if you will, is exactly that. It's mission and ministry to uh, both the needy and the people within their, their religious entities. So a lot of it does depend and will continue to depend on the, I think, sophistication of the people involved. It's not that they, anybody deliberately does, does something that would jeopardize the, the funds, but it's the reality of, of just the nature of the religious organization. And I don't limit that, frankly, to Catholic organizations. My guess is with many nonprofits and uh, and, and, and with other religious organizations, 
it is the same thing. People who work there work there because they believe in the organization, in the mission, not because they're the highest paid CFOs. So looking more broadly at the impact of this case law on, on the church business, uh, have you seen a difference in how uh, charitable gifts to, uh, to dioceses are, are made? Are trust and estates lawyers paying attention to these bankruptcies and, and structuring gifts accordingly? I think they are definitely paying attention to the bankruptcies, and I think that they are certainly more... Uh, aware that if they want their gift to be used for a specific purpose, that they need to be very clear about that. And let me just kind of put that in context of the law, because we've talked a little bit about trust and resulting trust and other things. I don't think there's a lot that's in dispute in these in these cases. <laughs> And I could talk for three hours, which I know we don't have, on all the various disputes that can come up in these cases. One thing that is not in dispute, uh, I don't believe, is that if a donor gives a gift that is restricted, and if the recipient of that gift observes the restriction appropriately, then notwithstanding the filing of a, of a Chapter 11, that restriction will be honored and it will be considered trust funds under uh, the, uh, the property of the estate under 541 and will not be subject to the claims of creditors in the Chapter 11. So, as I say, while many things are unsettled, I believe that that is one thing that, that even... My, my best adversaries would not agree with. Obviously, the issue is whether or not the restriction has been observed, and I believe those on the receiving end are certainly much more uh, uh, attuned to the issue, and while they certainly observed the restriction before, are, are very mindful of making sure that their records are clear and other things like that. So in that sense, I do believe that, that grant, uh, people who make grants to religious organizations and donors to the extent that they do not want it used for general purposes are being more mindful and more clear uh, in, as far as how they are restricting the funds. Susan, a major issue, as you know, that lurks beneath this topic of property of the estate is uh, is the question of, of church authority or church law versus secular law. To what extent can the court disturb decisions that the church has made uh, according to its internal governing laws regarding property? So since the Supreme Court's 1979 decision in Jones versus Wolf, of course, we've had support for this neutral principles of law approach for resolving church property disputes. Uh, how does that authority play out in a diocese case? Well, I'll tell you what, what, how the, other, how the, the uh, uh, claimant's attorneys view that it plays out, and then I'll tell you the way I think uh, the argument uh, would, should go with some quotes from Jones v. Wolf. And then I guess if these cases continue to go at some point, a case probably will reach the Supreme Court. But until that time, uh, we'll see. We'll, <laughs> these arguments will continue to be made. The argument, Kara, is, is that the court must apply neutral principles of law and that in all respects what neutral principles of law means under Jones v. Wolf is strictly civil law, and that under civil law, unless the uh, property ownership can be determined under civil law in a way that, for example, the resulting trust argument, that the diocese holds property as a resulting trust, real property that's in its name as a resulting trust for the benefit of the parish, um, is, is the law that the court has to apply as opposed to the canon law, 
which makes it very clear that a parish is a separate juridic person. A juridic person is the term that's used for a separate entity, if you will, um, <clears throat> excuse me, under canon law, and that the property of that juridic person is owned by that juridic person. So you do have a non-ambiguous, unambiguous statement under canon law as to property ownership. When it's been presented to the courts, certainly the bankruptcy court, not in exactly that way, they have always defaulted solely to state law and determined whether or not under state law uh, they believe that that the arguments uh, would could be affirmed, <clears throat> if you will. One of the arguments that I believe should be made under Jones v. Wolf is that neutral principles of law does not necessarily mean that you never look at what church law says on a particular topic. And I say that because there is a specific quote in Jones v. Wolf where they talk about neutral principles and they say specifically, and I'm going to read you the quote, this is not to say that the application of the neutral principles approach is wholly free of difficulty or, <clears throat> or that, and I'm not quoting specifically, that a civil court would not examine certain religious documents such as the church constitution for language of trust in favor of the general church. In undertaking such an examination, a civil court must take special care to scrutinize the document in purely secular terms, not to rely on religious precepts in determining whether the documents indicate that the parties have intended to create a trust. And it was dealing with trust language there. I believe that language, the argument that is made is Neutral principles mean you cannot look to the law of the church at all, and you must only apply state secular law. When I look at that quote from Jones v. Wolf, I don't believe that's what it says. If it is an unsettled question of, of church law, no state court and no federal court has the ability to settle that question and must, must refer that question to the ecclesiastical court if it's necessary for a resolution of the case. If, however, there is no ambiguity or no interpretation of the law of the church that's required, then I think the court can and should refer to the, to the law of the church in making its decision and applying neutral principles. That's my argument. Now, is there a decision to that effect? <laughs> of course not. <laughs> Well, maybe you'll get it in the next case, although I'm not sure with everything you've been telling me. <laughs> I'm, well, and, and that, really is, that really is the crux of it. I mean, the administrative costs in these, in these cases, and I started by telling you they're extremely interesting case, uh, questions and they're extremely complex, as you, as you can see and as you've seen in the decisions that have actually come down in the various cases that, that there are. And... The administrative costs in these cases are at least as much, if not more, as they would be in any business case. The difference that you have in these cases is that, or one of the differences is that the emotional overlay in these cases on all sides is, is you know, very, very significant. And you are dealing with uh, really horrific damage and horrific acts that have been committed. Nobody denies that, that, that the abuse happened. And you're dealing with, again, a, an entity that these claims are not current claims. They're generally from the 40s, 50s, you know, 60s. They do go up later than that, but most of the time they are within that time period. The people who are there now are not the people who caused the problem. And the parishioners who are there now are not the parishioners who were there. So it's, as you can see, all the various parties that are in these cases 
um, it is it is very very difficult, and and not many of these cases get resolved quickly, which is unfortunate because there are limited funds even if you bring in all the property of the estate. I mean, in Fairbanks, for example, these parishes were out, you know, in villages that were inaccessible during all but three or four months of the year. Uh, that property certainly has little value. Many other cases in, in Tucson, it was similar. It was a poor diocese. Uh, so that really is another driving force in these cases is, is Frankly, parties cannot afford to, nor should they try to litigate every one of these issues in these cases, because every dollar that is spent on administrative costs is a dollar that is taken out of a fund to compensate people who truly are, are, uh, for you know, for the most part, entitled to compensation. And it makes all of these difficult issues that that we're grappling in this uh, grappling with in this podcast largely academic, or they'll continue to come up again and again. They will continue to come up again and again, and, you know, again, uh, uh, it will be interesting to see whether the, ninth, whether the Seventh Circuit uh, decides to reach the merits or because, uh, notwithstanding the fact that it came before the district court as a, a, an appeal of a summary judgment, that uh, the court then determined to decide as a matter of law, notwithstanding a claim by the committee that it actually required a factual inquiry, um, you know, the Seventh Circuit could decide and agree it's a matter of law and reach the merits, at least on those issues, or it could very well decide, send it back as a question of fact. So. Well, I'm glad you mentioned the uh, the Seventh Circuit case. I'd really like to focus on on that case for a minute here because it brings up another one of these thorny legal issues that we haven't yet discussed, which is the intersection of bankruptcy law with the First Amendment and the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, or RIFRA. As you know, much of the activity in a bankruptcy case could potentially theoretically give rise to a claim uh, for a First Amendment violation or a RIFRA uh, violation. Uh, and that was the, the matter before the court in the Archdiocese of Milwaukee case, uh, where over the summer uh, we have a decision from the district court holding that RIFRA and the First Amendment's free exercise clause prohibited the creditors committee from accessing funds that were placed in a cemetery trust. Uh, so I'd like to talk to you a little bit about the court's decision there. And again, that's the district court's decision reversing the bankruptcy court. Uh, because in finding a RIFRA violation here, uh, the court made the decision that, uh, that a creditors committee was a governmental actor. Uh, RIFRA prohibits the government from substantially burdening religious exercise unless the burden's narrow, narrowly tailored to serve a compelling governmental interest. So with respect to that aspect of the ruling, were you surprised uh, that the court went there? I can't say I was surprised that the court went there. I think that um, the, the certainly the court's analysis as far as when a committee is acting uh, in the shoes, if you will, of a trustee or a debtor in possession as a court-appointed, uh, basically a court-appointed officer that it's acting under color of, of, of law. Um, I haven't researched all of the cases that were cited, but I know, for example, there are other instances in which, for example, under the Barton Doctrine, uh, even a debtor's uh, Council or committee council cannot be sued without permission of the court so that they are protected basically as an officer of the court. Whereas in most cases, um, certainly if there's a malpractice claim, that claim can be brought in any court against the attorney. So it's not without some analogy. Uh, I think that, that this court has certainly gone 
gone through much more analysis than the bankruptcy courts where the issue has been raised before because in every in the other cases I think it it, it is a difficult argument um, it is a difficult argument because it's clear I, I believe or fairly clear that RIFRA uh, requires some type of state action and the court in in the Archdiocese of Milwaukee case certainly recognized that and I'm not I don't believe that argument was made in any of the other cases so it's a it's an incredibly interesting question and if in fact the Seventh Circuit agrees with the with the district court and affirms the district court it certainly will have significant and far-reaching effect on the arguments that are made in these cases with respect to uh, the determination of ownership of property. One of the, one of the things that I do want to make clear is there is certainly RIFRA is not the sole uh, First Amendment argument, and. Uh, that can be made in these cases in terms of, of rulings or issues that a court might consider as far as, as what may be a First Amendment uh, violation. Uh, for example, uh, certainly I don't think in the context of a religious organization case can a bankruptcy court appoint a trustee. And I think that, that while the court would, would be acting at, perhaps under government authority, it also certainly, I think, would be a violation of the First Amendment because then it would be uh, impinging on the free exercise of religion to have a trustee come in. Uh, there are other areas that, that might arise in a commercial case. Um, certainly one of them is already taken care of under the bankruptcy code, which is that as a nonprofit, there cannot be an involuntary conversion of a case, nor can be there can be an involuntary filing of a of a case against a uh, a nonprofit um, organization. So there are various areas that I already restrict what a bankruptcy court, or frankly any court, can do uh, that would that would not violate the First Amendment. So I don't, I don't think that we've seen necessarily the breadth of all the issues that could arise in these cases, and I'm not certainly inviting uh, other, <laughs> other issues into these cases uh, uh, at all, but what I am saying is that, that, again, the complexity of these cases and the various arguments that can be made are in many respects also very fact-driven uh, because each diocese and or the various parishes may be organized in different ways or charitable organizations or the way grants or gifts are given. So it, it does become, um, as I started by saying and I've said before, very complex, very intellectually challenging, and incredibly expensive if you wanted to litigate these very, very interesting and complex issues. Well, on that point, uh, and with respect to RIFRA and the First Amendment, uh, I'd, I'd like to get a sense of sort of the universe of, of this issue. Is this, is this an issue that comes up in, in every uh, diocese case, or is it something that, that you've not seen that frequently? And, and, and why... If you have anything to, to gain from that, that'd be great. Sure. Um, it has come up in terms, it does come up in every case. It has come up in every case but Tucson through a request by the committee to allow it to pursue avoidance actions um, such as claims against parishes, uh, declaratory judgment for determination of property of the estate, uh, and similar type issues because generally what happens is demand is made by the committee that the, that the diocese pursue those, those issues 
finally under an application by the credit the committee to uh, for authority to pursue those avoidance actions. Um, in and uh, in Tucson, while certainly the issue was discussed, the committee never sought authority to uh, to pursue the actions because we were able to resolve it by the parishes collectively putting contributing to the fund that would go to compensate the uh, the claimants and then getting the benefit of the uh, channeling injunction that was issued because these cases really when you put the plan when you put the plan together are very much modeled after the mass tort uh, asbestos cases uh, before the amendment to uh, 524 uh, so you know the Johns Manville A.H. Uh, Robbins lines of mm-hmm. You know, I'm curious when I I think about these types of arguments uh, that are brought before bankruptcy judges, uh, when when the debtor essentially has has sought the jurisdiction of the bankruptcy court, sought relief from the bankruptcy court, and what do courts make of these arguments that are fundamentally centered on an idea that that no court you cannot exercise the full limits of of your powers under the bankruptcy code. Um, well, and I don't remember uh, off the top of my head, Carol, whether it was in the uh, Spokane bankruptcy case or Portland or both, where uh, the argument, you know, certainly the RIFRA argument was advanced, and then uh, the argument that the court, uh, the court should look to canon law and be bound by canon law in terms of property ownership. I think that the problem, and it's a very practical, I mean, the practical issue is, and I believe one of the one of the judges said it, that when you are seeking the protection and benefit of Chapter 11, that uh, the court was questioning how it was or why it was that you would then, or the court would, the court's most fundamental. Um, uh, area of inquiry, if you will, and that is property of the estate would not would not be a proper exercise of its jurisdiction. So it, it is a practical problem. I mean, put a different way, it is saying to a bankruptcy court that one of the most fundamental questions in a Chapter 11, the scope of property of the estate, cannot be uh, cannot be determined by the court. That's not exactly the way it comes before the court, but in essence, it's to some extent the argument. I would say that you're not telling a bankruptcy court that they can't make that determination. I think what what you're saying as the diocesan attorney is that here are all of the decisions and here are all of the reasons why, um, even under state law, property that the diocese is saying is property of the parishes is in fact property of the parishes, and that you should also consider um, what canon law says on this issue. Well, before I let you go, Susan, I'd like to get your sense of the impact of these bankruptcy cases on on, on the churches, uh, their day-to-day operations, their missions, parishional, parishioners' gifts, and also um, how long does it take a diocese to recover from a bankruptcy case? I know that when um, you know when the when the first cases were being considered, there was concern about the uh, giving and whether parishioners or others would would be willing to give to a diocese. I think that what the experience has been is that the level of giving has not. <clears throat> Has not deteriorated substantially. These are very, very difficult issues, not just for the claimants, but for all that are involved. Uh, and uh, I believe that everybody, including claimants, uh, want to see uh, a resolution, if you will, and and having a resolution benefits all the constituencies. So. 
well, certainly, I think it 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 is something that people think about. I believe that it generally uh, does not dissuade people who are inclined to give anyway from giving to the religious organization to the to the diocese. Um, the recovery, it depends, and I say that because generally all the property plus is is usually uh, included in the fund that goes to compensate the claimants, and it can take a long time, particularly for a diocese that is is poor, if they have taken all of their excess property that might have been used to develop other parishes or sold to help with the with other with other purposes um, or earmarked for other things. And I'm not making a qualitative judgment that it should be used for that as opposed to compensation of victims by any means, but I'm just saying that it is it is a significant financial event for a diocese, and uh, it is one that that takes years to recover from. Well, that's all the time we have. Thank you, Susan Boswell, for joining me today, and thank you to our listeners for tuning in. You can always find more than 130 podcasts at our website, podcast.abi.org. Until next time, from the American Bankruptcy Institute, this is resident scholar Kara Bruce. Thank you.